Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. This week, AJC's Paris office released a new survey measuring Jewish and non-Jewish opinions about anti-Semitism across France. Joining us now to unpack the survey findings is Simone Rodin Benzikin, the Paris-based director of AJC Europe. Simone, what's fascinating and even groundbreaking, I think, about this survey that AJC Paris just conducted is that we asked the questions of both Jews and non-Jews about their thoughts and feelings around anti-Semitism. And so now that we have the results, we can actually compare the way French Jews think about anti-Semitism from the way French non-Jews do. So let's start off with the ways in which their thoughts are the same. What are the areas where French Jews and French non-Jews are kind of similarly concerned or on the same page about the sources of or are, are worried in the same way about anti-Semitism? Um, so first of all, I would say that um, the one thing that I think Jews and non-Jews share is the understanding that anti-Semitism has really sort of become a problem in France. I mean, for French Jews, of course, it's more than a problem. It's a reality. and It's something that they have to deal with. And we can go further into sort of what that actually means and, and to what extent Jews are actually affected by anti-Semitism. Uh, but what is also clearly seen is that French people in general um, have really understood that anti-Semitism has become a problem and that they experience even in their daily lives. One out of five French people, uh, so not Jewish, has heard someone is in his entourage uh, say something bad about Jews, for example. So mm. it's basically, it basically means that, you know, one out of five a French person who is not Jewish, can be anywhere in France, has heard something bad be said about Jews. So the sort of the, the anti-Semitic reality has really sort of become a reality both for Jews and non-Jews. Um, what I think sort of separates the Jews and non-Jews is, of course, the experience. And this is very clear is that Jews and non-Jews simply don't have the same lives in France, uh, the, the same concerns, uh, the same daily life, uh, the same, same perception of uh, security, um, of threat, the way they perceive their family and they, then the way that they behave. Mm -hmm. And I guess one way that we're seeing that manifest is this kind of startling top line result, which is that nearly three quarters of the French public and 72% of Jews, so 73% of French people at large and 72% of French Jews consider anti-Semitism a problem that affects all of French society, which is really a startling number. I guess it's actually a positive number to see that so many French people at large are concerned about the problem. Is that right? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's sort of um, out of the rather sobering aspect of the survey. I think this is really the part that um, gives us a little bit of hope. Let's not forget that anti-Semitism has been a problem in France for nearly 20 years. Um, the numbers have proven it. People have been killed in France. People get daily assaulted um, in the streets, in their homes, and in front of synagogues and schools. And so to see that French people in general now understand that anti-Semitism is not just a problem for 
you know, the nearly 1% of the population in France, meaning Jews, uh, but it, that they have come to understand that it is an attack against French values, that it's a, an attack against France's very identity and democracy, um, I think is a positive sign. For many, many years, Jews in France have felt very lonely. There was a clear feeling of solitude. I personally remember you know, the number of demonstrations of walks where we were very much alone. We would walk in the streets after the murder of Ilan Halimi. By the way, for yesterday we commemorated his 14th year when he was uh, abducted and ultimately then killed 28 days later. But I remember that after he was killed, we were a couple of, you know, few hundred, maybe a thousand in the streets. And we were basically, you know, 99.9% Jews. So to now understand that French people in their entirety, very largely, 73%, understand that anti-Semitism concerns all of France and the very heart of France, is very important. Mm-hmm. Not to move us away from the kind of uplifting elements of this too quickly, <laughs> uh, but there aren't that many uplifting elements. So we, we might have exhausted that line of questioning. I wanted to also ask Simone, where are the places in the results in which Jewish opinion and French opinion at large differs? You know, often we'll see that Jews are concerned about different sources of anti-Semitism from the way that non-Jews kind of think about anti-Semitism. To make the direct analogy, here in America, we often see politicians from one party or the other or public figures associated with either the left or the right kind of saying, you know, of course anti-Semitism is important and that's why everyone should agree with my kind of predetermined political outlook on the world because, you know, that also they would say holds the answer to anti-Semitism which is pretty cynical. So I'm wondering, did we uncover kind of the same thing in France with this survey? Well, it's interesting. So three sources were cited, um, actually four. Um, one is Islamism, one is the far left, one is the far right. And then we also asked about sort of the general the age-old um, anti-Semitic prejudice. Uh, but let's focus on the first three, Islamism, far left and far right. On Islamism, both relatively agree. There is a 10%, 9% difference, but Jews and non-Jews agree. Jews uh, by 45% see that Islamism is the first source of anti-Semitism. Non-Jews place it at 36%. On the extreme right, also, they share a relatively same view on it, where they differ immensely is on the way they perceive the far left Mm. and the far left anti-Semitism. And there, Jews, French Jews, see that it is by 30% a source of anti-Semitism and on the French people in general, only 9%. And I think this has partly something to do with the fact that uh, French Jews have experienced, uh, have understood for a very long time that this anti-Semitism affects them, that it's not the traditional anti-Semitism that can be easily identified with swastikas, with neo-Nazis. But they know that this sort of anti-Zionist obsession has easily become something else and has easily become anti-Semitism. And I think, unfortunately, the rest of society as such has not yet come to understand it, even though I still have hope that this will be coming. Mm -hmm. 
Surveys are released every day in every country all around the world. And and even around anti-Semitism, there have been a number of surveys that have come out in recent months. Has this one made any kind of a particular splash in France? Yeah, I think we can easily say that. We brought it out yesterday, and it was on the front page of the big, most read, most widely read newspaper uh, in France. It was on the front page. The front page said, the Jews of France are worried, are afraid. Um, And then there were another two pages in there. And basically, uh, for the past 48 48 hours, uh, despite everything else what's going on in the world, it's been basically the top story. Anti-Semitism has tended on Twitter. They have been, I can't even count them anymore. The number of articles uh, has been invited on all sorts of uh, shows, etc., to talk about it. Um, Because, again, I think it comes at a time when there is growing understanding of the fact that anti-Semitism is a symptom of a bigger problem, that we have seen a lot of violence, we have seen a lot of radicalization, both, you know, Islamist radicalization, but also in the political spectrum. And I think people have come to understand that, you know, if we don't tackle the problem of anti-Semitism, the cancer will only spread and it will only affect the rest of society more. So I think it's at least my interpretation that is one of the reasons why this has received such widespread coverage and discussion and conversation also in the political sphere. It also happened so that Emmanuel Macron has now traveled to Israel to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And so this is another reason why I think that there is this particular focus given to, you know, the anti-Semitism that affects Jews in France, because also many, many Jews have decided to leave France and now go to Israel. Emmanuel Macron will be meeting tomorrow with the French Jewish community there. So I think all of this is is a reason why this has received such widespread coverage. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, Simone, that you know we conducted a survey on anti-Semitism here in the States recently, which also made quite a few headlines. And one of the things we found was that a number of Jews in this country were nervous to be identifiably Jewish, to wear a kippah or to wear a shirt with Hebrew writing, to wear a Megen David necklace around their neck, that kind of thing. That's something that I had always associated more with being Jewish in Europe. People have long kind of warned me, um, you know, don't wear a kippah when you are in France, for example. Did the AJC Paris survey uncover any kind of statistics about being identifiably Jewish in France? Uh, yes, absolutely. And, and let's not forget that, you know, a big chunk of the Jewish community in France is actually religious. So they are very much visible. Um, yes, it, it's something that we clearly found in our study. Um, it's, by the way, also something that the media over the last two days have really focused on quite a bit. We found that basically French Jews have found sort of strategies of becoming invisible, whether it's by, you know, having the mezuzah on their door, they will rather than having it sort of, you know, visibly outside, they will put it inside of the door or by wearing a kippah in the street or even by calling their kids who have sometimes, you know, Jewish sounding names in the street. And so this is the case for 37% of all Jews and out of the victims, meaning those who have already had or experienced an anti-Semitic act, it's 47%. This is also the case that like, for example, people will try and avoid 
to say that they are Jewish. A quarter of all those that we polled said that they try to not reveal their Jewish identity at work. So this is really something that is very, very, very present in French Jews' lives. And additionally, sort of to go a step further, we also asked people whether they have thought about, you know, moving. And that is also something that we really found. Uh, we saw that 22% of French Jews, of all those who we polled, said they had already thought about leaving their neighborhood because they were afraid that they would be facing anti-Semitism. And lastly, 50% of all French Jews, and it's something that we had also found in the previous study that we did uh, a few months ago when we did a comparative study between France and the United States and Israel, that the AJC study that we did, we found this time once again that um, half of French Jews have already considered leaving France to a different country. So this is, of course, very, very concerning. And again, goes back to what I mentioned earlier on in our conversation, French Jews and French people in general just simply don't have the same lives. They don't have the same concerns. They don't have the same reality. So that's a big problem. Simone, I always feel so enlightened when I talk with you about this topic because I feel like in many ways you are a visitor from the future, a future that we in America desperately want to avoid getting to. And what I mean by that is France is the largest diaspora Jewish community anywhere in the world except for the United States. French Jews have long been successful in France, long felt welcome in France. There are places in Paris that are just as Jewish as, you know, the Upper West Side of Manhattan for those people who are familiar with New York City. And yet, over the past couple of decades, we've seen the situation of French Jews descend in a really dire way such that lately it has not felt crazy to ask the question as to whether there's a future for the French Jewish community. So I guess what I'm interested in hearing from you now is, you know, what lessons can we in the U.S. learn from France? How can we do it differently so that 10 or 20 years from now, when we're conducting a survey on anti-Semitism, we're not finding these same, you know, incredibly dire results of widespread anti-Semitism as a major problem for the U.S., but we're remembering these kind of scary days right now where we've had a few terrible attacks, we're remembering these as a grim blip on the radar in our history. Um, yes, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that actually we at AJC are particularly well-placed to draw from our experience and to understand that what we in France, what we in Europe have experienced for nearly 20 years can at least serve as a lesson, as a cautionary tale for the United States. And I share your hope that we'll look back to this moment as just a sort of bad memory, at least for the United States. So first of all, and I think we touched upon some of those issues already, the first is, I think, is to understand that anti-Semitism is and always has been an indicator of a society in trouble. It is the cannery in the coal mine, 
it is anti-Semitism that ultimately destroys the sort of pluralistic fabrics of our democratic society. And I think that's how we have to deal with it. And that's how we have to build alliances, that we have to build coalitions. We have to make sure that we are not alone in this fight, that politicians, that leaders, that civil society leaders, that community leaders are all with us in this fight, because at the end of the day, um, it affects all of us. The second, I think, and you again, you touched upon this and we touched upon this in the survey, is the fact that anti-Semitism comes from different sources. And we can absolutely not play the political game of the left accuses the right, right accuses the left, no one wants to deal with Islamist anti-Semitism, etc. We really, I mean, anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism full stop. And anyone who's really interested in tackling it and really interested in addressing it really can't play that political game. So that, I think, is the second very important lesson. The third, I would say, is that we have to have a very clear zero-tolerance policy. We have for far too long tolerated small anti-Semitic acts, small anti-Semitic hate crimes, small anti-Semitic speech without really countering it, whether it's legally, whether it's by police, whether it's even by words, by arguments, by not letting things pass. And I think you know, you have in, in the United States this theory of the broken glass window theory, with the idea that you have to repair a window if it's broken somewhere in the street, because if you don't, it will just create more incivility. Um, and so that's, I think, the really the idea that, you know, right from the beginning, whenever you see something happening, you have to have a very clear zero tolerance strategy. And lastly, I would say, and I know this in the American context is always a little bit complicated, but is the issue of what's going on on social media. I know that freedom of speech is key. I know that the First Amendment is absolutely um, sacred, and I certainly don't intend to question that. But I think we collectively have to ask ourselves the question whether the real world, whether we would accept things that are happening right now in the virtual world in the real world, because the virtual world is very much a wild, wild west. I don't think anyone would, you know, allow for the New York Times to publish, you know, a horrific anti-Semitic statement or someone says kill the Jews or, by the way, also kill the Arabs or the blacks or whatever. We wouldn't accept, but it's something that we see every single day on social media without really much happening. And so I think that together, collectively, on both sides of the Atlantic, and yes, the European Union has a very different approach to it, but I think collectively we have to come together to try and find, address that issue and try and address it together with the social media companies so that they can also have some sort of corporate responsibility because it just can't go on that way. Simone, very important prescriptions from you for dealing with these major challenges and important findings from your survey. Uh, we'll link to more of those in our show notes so our listeners can check that out in more depth. Thank you so much for joining us today on People of the Pod. Thank you, Sefi. A Pew Research Center survey released this week revealed that less than half of Americans know how many Jews died during the Holocaust, and some don't even know when the Holocaust took place. Our producer, Ku Kong Do, and I went to the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust here in Manhattan, to see its latest installation. 
We talked to Jack Klieger, the museum's president, about how the museum has partnered with the city's Department of Education to teach about the Holocaust in New York City public schools. It is in response to an uptick in anti-Semitic attacks in the streets of Brooklyn. We are here today at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust. And with me is the president of the museum, Jack Klieger. And we are here, of course, to mark International Holocaust Remembrance, which the museum does year-round. Mr. Klieger, I'm used to welcoming people to the studio, but thank you for welcoming us to the museum today. Well, that's great. Welcome to, to our place and to our exhibit. And it's great to have you here and to be able to talk about it. Thank you. This is the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. So tell us about the exhibit. Like I said, you commemorate the Holocaust year-round, but tell Mm -hmm. us about the special exhibit you have now. Yes. uh, We opened the exhibit in May of this year, so it's now around um, eight or nine months long. We will extend it now through um, August of this coming year. Um, It is the largest uh, collection of artifacts and photographs from the Auschwitz camp that ever existed outside of Poland. Uh, we brought it here for a couple of reasons. It's called Auschwitz not long ago and not far away, and that really captures what we mean. It was not that long ago, 75 years ago, that it was liberated, mm-hmm. and not that far away. And we want people to remember that um, what happened before dangerously can happen again. But uh, we uh, decided to bring it here mainly because of the lack of knowledge and the ignorance about what happened uh, to the six million, one and a half million of which were children, and the fact that people should know what hate did and what hate can do. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've been uh, very uh, um, pleased that a number of people, large number, over 150,000 people have visited the exhibit since we've opened. But for us, the most important statistic is that over 25,000 of those have been students. And our commitment is not only to remembrance, but to education. And we feel that one of the missions we have is to to teach students about what anti-Semitism was, what it did, and uh, hate in general, and xenophobia, and prejudice. Mm-hmm. Our exhibit is based on what happened before, during, and after the Holocaust. We're right now on the third floor where we're specifically talking about Auschwitz, but there is a terrible reminiscence of the kind of atmosphere that came out in the 30s. And here in the United States, we're very concerned, not just about the rise in anti-Semitic incidents, but the boldness and brazenness with which these hate groups communicate. Mm-hmm. For me and for us, the march in Charlottesville was traumatic on one sense, but what was more traumatic is what they didn't even need to wear masks. Mm-hmm. So. Um, We think this is a a learning moment, a teaching moment. We want both youths and adults to come through here, and we don't want ignorance. We think the the first fight against hate is ignorance. So tell us about uh, some of the artifacts that are featured here that you think will strike a chord, especially with students. Sure. Um, We have over 700 artifacts from both Poland and many other lending institutions around the world, including the Anne Frank House. We have some artifacts in the Anne Frank House on the second floor, and obviously students identify with that. Mm -hmm. But we're here on the third floor in an area where we show Canada. That's with a K, not C. Canada was the area in Auschwitz where they took all of the people's belongings before they had been sent into the 
crematoria, and they told them they would just store them. And you can see the photographs of the mountains mm -hmm. of materials, brushes, mirrors, suitcases. One of the most emotional areas for me is the pile of suitcases that all the people came there with their suitcases, thinking they were just going somewhere, not knowing. But for me here, this area is very impactful. It's just a display of buttons, about 30, 40 buttons, different kinds. And you think that each button was something that was worn by an individual, by a person, who maybe oftentimes the last thing they touched. Mm -hmm. And what we've done is we've put them on a shelf. The light that shines over them just shows in the bottom that there's just shadows. Yes. And so we think that that says a lot about there are shadows, but when we say never forget, we remember. We remember not only the buttons, the people who wore them, and remember their shadows, mm -hmm. and that they'll never really leave us. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not an entertaining exhibit. It's a very, obviously, um, in many ways disturbing, but we think it's very important. Our, our visitors um, are very, not only somber, but appreciative that they've been able to understand and learn, and hopefully not be, going forward, bystanders. When we talk to students, we say there really were four groups in the Holocaust. There were the perpetrators, there were the victims, there were the bystanders, and there were some upstanders. Mm -hmm. And what were our point is that you shouldn't be a bystander. You should be an upstander. Yes. Um, so uh, and that lesson is very important for us, I think, to teach eighth and 10th graders. How do you gauge the reaction uh, from visitors? Do you have an opportunity for them to write in? Yeah, we do some surveying, representative samples. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of feedback. I particularly gauge the response from the survivors that we bring through, who are both our visitors, but also our, our witnesses, mm -hmm. our, our, our spokespeople, our storytellers. And there are them, some who cannot go through. Um, but there are those who do go through and see that they not only brings up history, but it brings up their sense of responsibility to teach and, and keep the lessons of the Holocaust in the minds of particularly young people. It's amazing to see a 90-year-old survivor talk to a group of 15-year-old kids, mm -hmm. kids who oftentimes come from a ghetto or a barrio themselves. Right. But who come to first realize that theirs is not the first ghetto, mm -hmm. um, and it's and and you see what can happen to people. Yes. Um, so we have gotten very uh, positive feedback, but I'd say my my most satisfying feedback is from survivors. These are very difficult memories for them to process. I'm sure it does not surprise me that some can't take the tour themselves. Um, I'm curious, do you have a familial connection to the Holocaust? Yes, my, uh, both my parents are survivors. Okay. I'm a second generation, and I spent a lot of time growing up understanding the stories. I've been involved with the museum for years as a trustee, and most recently now they've asked me to be the president. But yes, I have a strong familial connection. Unfortunately, when you're a child of survivors, you have strong connections, but not a lot of family. So uh, we came here in the United States. I was actually, I'm an immigrant. I was born in Italy and, uh, after the war. And so, um, and my mother's still alive. And so uh, she's my most, most important uh, advisor on 
on this. Did your parents talk much about that, or does your mother talk about it now? Now they do. It's interesting that many survivors talk much more now as they see where the world is headed than they did when the first, I call it the first period after the Holocaust was when they wanted to put it behind, go forward with their lives, create families, and rebuild the Jewish people. Yeah. It was very, so there was a, there was a, a sort of evolution of that. But what's very interesting is to watch a survivor talk to a grandchild mm. um, much more easily oftentimes than to their own children. Ah. Has your mother seen the museum exhibit? She's seen the museum. Okay. Um, I've told her I don't think it's necessary for her to go through. She said, okay, but she said sometime she's going to come see it. And I said, you can do whatever you want, Mom. <laughs> Any survivor who's here, they can do and say whatever they want. Yes. And probably the most telling quote for me is that one from a former SS uh, man um, in which he basically says the children, they're not the enemy of the moment. The enemy is the blood inside them. The enemy is the growing up to be a Jew that could become dangerous. And because of that, the children are included as well. So it shows the depths of what man's inhumanity to man can be. Mm -hmm explaining why he condoned the killing of Jewish children in a 2004 documentary. Exactly. Wow. So tell us about the, the efforts. You, you just made a, a recent announcement to offer right. free tours to city public school students and their families. Yeah, working with the Department of Education of New York and in light of the recent incidents, we started with bringing 8th and 10th graders in cooperation with the Department of Education and the Hate Crimes Unit not because they've committed anything, but we wanted to educate them. So 8th and 10th graders from three neighborhoods in Brooklyn, Crown Heights, Borough Park, and uh, Williamsburg, where there are significant Jewish populations. But the public school students from those schools will be coming through here and taking a tour of the exhibit. In addition, any student from those grades will be able to come here, show their uh, report card, and be able to bring up to three members of their family through the exhibit for free. So we have them coming both as student groups or as importantly as we feel, as families. Because, you know, kids have to be taught to hate and fear. And they can be taught in schools, they can be taught at home. So uh, we, we're very pleased with that. We've always been dedicated to young people. Since the museum opened in 97, we've had over half a million students come through. It's an important mission of ours that remembrance has to be matched with education. You have to honor the past and, and, and give hope for the future and, and teach. Because the museum's also providing resources for public school teachers as Absolutely. well, Absolutely. Right? We do professional development. We have a curriculum that they use in the school. And we will be doing more additions to the curriculum for teachers. But we think teaching teachers how to teach the Holocaust and its lessons is an important part of our mission. So why this very generous gesture so recently? Is it because there's so many, you know, there have been, there has been a rise of attacks um, in Brooklyn on visibly Jewish um, residents and many of the perpetrators have been young. Um, is that, is that why? Or? No, I mean, it's unfortunate how many young people don't even know what Auschwitz means. How many young people are ignorant about what happened in the Holocaust? We've taken a couple of these eighth grade groups through, and afterwards they said they didn't have any idea, but it has changed their view of what it is to be differentiated, discriminated against, and see that it can happen to others. So um, we consider it an honor to commemorate 
not only the six million, but the survivors, but we consider it a responsibility to teach for future generations. So we never forget, but know that there is hope for the future that we can make it a better place. So we're standing in a rotunda in the museum where the resistance exhibit is featured. And this is an exhibit, uh, it's not featuring self-defense methods or uh, acts of, of civil disobedience or violence, but this is a, a room about spiritual resistance, about acts of kindness, and really efforts to preserve solidarity within the Jewish community, within the camps, and to make sure that memories were preserved, identities were preserved, and that's the kind of resistance this room really highlights. It's uh, topped with a skylight, so there's plenty of natural light filling the room, and it really gives you a sense um, of being a part of a community, a strong, enduring community. In this room, which many people say is their favorite room, it's the room about spiritual and physical resistance. Um, there are all sorts of expressions of it, but for me, the most evocative is the chauffeur that was brought out of Auschwitz by a survivor. Um, this chauffeur was actually blown in Auschwitz by a group um, at great danger to their lives. And then the person who had it, Haskell Tador, um, was on the death march. He got it from another soldier, uh, from another member of the death march who knew he wasn't going to make it. And he gave it to Haskell and he said, take it with you, get it out, and tell future generations, tell them that the chauffeur was blown in Auschwitz. So he got it out, took it to Israel, where he kept it uh, all that time from 45 until he gave it to his daughter. It was always blown um, at people's homes when they were too sick to go to the holidays to temple. His daughter, uh, Professor Judith Schwartz from Israel, came to the exhibit, saw it, and decided this was the place where she wanted the chauffeur to stay. So we got it here last September, just before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And on Rosh Hashanah, um, 75 years after it was blown in Auschwitz, we blew it here. Uh, not only here at the museum, but we took it to two synagogues where it was blown to the congregations. And it really is a symbol of um, resistance and the will to not do an act of self-defense and self -reveal. You couldn't necessarily shoot, but you could, you could maintain a tradition. So on the 27th, when we have our event here at the museum, we will take the chauffeur out, and the rabbi from one of the synagogues locally will blow it in front of a group of survivors who are here with us while the candle lighting in Poland is being uh, displayed on a screen. That's incredibly powerful. As we exit, we're reminded that not everybody was free to pursue a new life after the liberation. There were so many lives lost. Footage of those lives, home movies, flash across the wall as you walk out of the exhibit. You're reminded of the lives that were lost. This was written by Auschwitz survivor Charlotte Delbo in 1971, and we thought it was appropriate for people, and I can read it if you'd like. Please. You who are passing by, I beg you, do something. Learn a dance step, something to justify your existence. Something that gives you the right to be dressed in your skin, in your body hair. Learn to walk and to laugh, because it would be too senseless, after all, for so many to have died 
while you live doing nothing with your life. So that's a quote that we always have students read before they leave. Wow, beautiful. Thank you so much for this tour. You're welcome. Thank you for coming. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Chaviv Redig Gur, the senior analyst at the Times of Israel. Chaviv, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Thank you. What we're going to be talking about at our Shabbat dinner is a little more depressing. Um, we just had the World Holocaust Forum. 40, 50 world leaders came to Israel. They talked about the Holocaust. They talked about survivors. They talked about anti-Semitism in Europe and around the world, uh, and about tackling anti-Semitism and remembering the Holocaust. And I found the experience extraordinarily alienating and frustrating to witness uh, how really everybody involved dealt with the Holocaust. We had a very publicized fight between uh, the Russian and Polish governments over how much was the wartime Polish government collaborating with the Nazis and mm. what responsibility for the start of the war did the Soviets and therefore the Russians have. And it was uh, an argument that left the Polish and Lithuanian leaders home and not they wouldn't come to this global commemoration. Right. Netanyahu used the forum to talk about Iran and to talk about the Israeli lesson from the Holocaust, which was a lesson that we have to always defend ourselves and we can't trust the world. And the trouble is, that's not exactly the history either. The history of Rommel's charge across North Africa would have seen the Nazis arrive here, if not for the British defeat of the Nazis at El Alamein. So it's not quite clear that without imperial British control of the Middle East in the middle of that war, the Jews of Israel would have survived. That mm. is to say, Drawing the lesson from World War II, that sort of simple political lesson that the Israelis always have to be strong, and if Israelis are strong, then the Jews are always safe, also isn't quite the history. And then we saw there the Germans and the British, who all spoke very eloquently about tolerance, as if tolerance is the lesson, and not what the Israelis think is the lesson, which is never be weak, never be a small, weak people threatened by others. When we talk about the Holocaust, almost nobody was able to really think about the actual events of the actual Holocaust. You had Eastern Europeans fighting their fight with Russian dominion in that area and Russian attempts to really dominate Eastern Europe. You have Netanyahu in the middle of an election campaign negotiating constantly through the Holocaust Forum with world leaders putting out essentially campaign literature from the Holocaust event about how close he is with world leaders, literally talking about how many people he met at a, at a you know over cocktails at the president's residence. Hmm. And you had uh, other people drawing uh, you know lessons about something called tolerance, which is adorable. But if tolerance disappearing leads to Holocausts, then we should despair much more than we despair today. Uh, because many societies have a lot of trouble with tolerance. So I came away from it with a sense that the actual victims, the actual people murdered, the actual lives and societies, the Holocaust cut out of the Jewish heart, an ancient civilization that was the center of Jewish civilization. The Israelis and the Jews of the Muslim world and the Jews of America were essentially peripheries demographically, and the main body was destroyed. And, and we still don't have a good way of talking about that 
that isn't basically our current politics. And I mean just about everybody I met over the last two days in Israel. So we're going to be having that very depressing discussion over our Shabbat dinner, <laughs> unless my kids uh, stop me and uh, we go on to have a, a more fun discussion. Uh, so Shabbat Shalom. And what about you, Manya? How old are your children, Chaviv? Uh, well, my oldest is nine. Okay. And uh, my youngest is six months. Oh, wow. So I'm not going to get very far into this discussion before they quiet me down. That is a really thoughtful observation, Chaviv. Thank you. And like you, my family will be tackling similar subject matter at our Shabbat table, the Holocaust. But I, too, will be wrestling with how best to address it with my children, ages three and five. I'm honestly not sure how many details to include. I certainly don't want to traumatize them. I will say they already know from the 1970s reruns of Wonder Woman, which I'm proud to say has become my daughter's favorite show, that Nazis are the bad guys. But just how bad? I need to figure out how much to share at this moment in their lives. What I can't get out of my head are the findings in the Pew Research Center's survey on the Holocaust, which I mentioned at the top of our previous segment at the museum. The Pew Research Center found that less than half of Americans know that six million Jews died in the Holocaust. Now, most know the Holocaust took place sometime between 1930 and 1950, and most know the Nazis forced Jews to live in ghettos. But one out of 10 thought it took place decades earlier. And less than half, 45% to be exact, didn't know how many people had died. That number, 6 million, is engraved in my brain. It blows my mind that other people don't know it by heart. Another important fact that Americans don't know, that Adolf Hitler became chancellor of Germany through a democratic political process. Some believe there was a violent overthrowing of the government or some agreement between countries to make him the chancellor. But no, it was a democratic vote. Respondents were given a chance to answer in their own words just what the Holocaust was. And most described it as an attempt to annihilate the Jewish people. But I do wonder, Haviv, I wonder if there should have been another question asking whether it's important to know these details and why. What should our lessons be? Are the details of what the Jews endured and suffered and survived and didn't survive, are those important? And when should we teach them to our children? We might wait for our kids to go to bed before we have that discussion, but it will undoubtedly be the topic of this week's Shabbat table. What about you, Sefi? The most senior Islamic leadership delegation ever to visit Auschwitz is in the notorious Nazi death camp today, accompanied by my AJC colleagues. Here's why that matters. Building bridges of understanding between Muslims and Jews is a moonshot for us at AJC. But it's not our first. 55 years ago, the first AJC-led interreligious moonshot finally bore fruit after working at it for years. It seems odd today to talk about Catholic-Jewish relations as anything other than loving and trusting, but that was not the case for most of the past two millennia. Jews were seen as guilty of killing Jesus and divinely condemned to homelessness and persecution. But in the 20th century, and especially after World War II, that began to change. And finally, in 1965, after decades of dialogue led by AJC and others with the convening of the Second Vatican Council and the arrival of the unprecedented Nostra Aetate, things changed. Removing the charge of deicide of the Jews killing Jesus from Catholic dogma made progress possible. And now, Pope Francis says things like, 
We were all convinced that anti-Semitism was over, but today the habit of persecuting the Jews is here reborn. This is neither human nor Christian. The Jews are our brothers and should not be persecuted. Understand? As a colleague of mine once said, a thousand years ago, Catholic-Jewish dialogue was illegal. A hundred years ago, it was unthinkable. Today, it's routine. It is nothing less than a modern miracle that 1.2 billion Catholics are today taught to love Jews, not hate us. The interreligious moonshot of the 21st century will be Muslim-Jewish relations. Too often, Muslims and Jews are expected to be enemies, and in truth, there is often too much mistrust and too little understanding. But that can change. Today, the Secretary General of the Muslim World League, His Excellency Dr. Muhammad Al-Issa, was in Auschwitz with AJC, leading a delegation of 62 Muslims, including 25 prominent religious leaders from 28 countries on several continents. Tomorrow, they will pray their Friday prayers in Warsaw and then celebrate Shabbat with the reborn Jewish community of Poland. I'll end with Dr. Al-Issa's words. To be here among the children of Holocaust survivors and members of the Jewish and Islamic communities is both a sacred duty and a profound honor. The unconscionable crimes to which we bear witness today are truly an affront to all of God's children. And that is a story worth sharing at all of our Shabbat tables. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 